This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, uh, we all know of the just unbelievably tragic story coming out of Pol- uh, Port Colborne uh, when a family uh, lost four members uh, the other day uh, during a house fire. Not only is this a tragic story 12 months of the year, but considering the time of year, uh, these are just not the sort of stories y- you want to be hearing about. And your heart just goes out to this family and uh, to the neighbors. And it looks like a pretty tight street that's uh, that's over there. And uh, just the horrific scene that they went through uh, when this all went down. Let's bring in Constable Philip Gavin, Niagara Regional Police Service. He is with us now. Hello, Gavin. How are you today? Or sorry, Philip, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Philip, give us some sort of sense of what your community is going through right now. Well, the town of Port Coburn, or excuse me, the city of Port Coburn, is, 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 is it's not the largest one. It's a close-knit group of people. And this happened right in the middle of the city. And so, you know, try to try to put a tragedy like this in words isn't, isn't something easily done. But, you know, it's impacted everybody, and from the friends and the family to just people who just live in the community. So... It's it's like you mentioned in your lead up. It, it's it's not easy any time of day, but certainly at this time of year when family is such an important thing, uh, this really uh, impacts a lot more people. Uh, what can you tell us about the scene at this point? Uh, any sort of update? Well, at, at this point, uh, at, at this point, we we brought in some heavy equipment. Um, the the house uh, is sustained a substantial amount of structural issues uh, between the fire itself. And then with, you know, the water that the fire department uses to extinguish the fire and the weather, you know, we now have issues of uh, things freezing, which makes the debris brittle and, and, and uh, you know, can break apart easily. So, which is, which is good, for, but it's also bad because with the structural integrity being compromised, you know, we, you know, we have the, the roof is actually fallen in and this parts of the second floor have actually kind of caved into the lower floor. So uh, at this point, the main priority today is the recovery of the, the bodies within. And that part of the investigation with the Ontario Fire Marshal and our detectives um, is moving forward. Uh, the heavy truck is, our heavy equipment is slowly kind of taking the house apart piece by piece uh, so we can locate the bodies and well, as important that is, is we're also trying to, you know, be cognizant that there is evidence so that you can try and collect that evidence to, you know, have some understanding what the cause is and to prevent such tragedies in the future. It must be terribly uh, traumatic for even the crews that have to uh, undergo such tasks. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, on the, the, night in, the night when all this unfolded yesterday morning in the early morning hours, you know, uh, police and fire were on scene very quickly. I think fire was on scene within four minutes. And, uh, I know um, very quickly they, you know, attempted resuscitative efforts. You know, police officers and the fire department on uh, on the elderly lady, and those weren't successful. And you know, trying to you know people are inside. That those aren't easy things to you know for people to kind of wrap their brain around. And now you know we've got especially the police officers and the firefighters. They're part of the community, and you know they know people and. And they're impacted by these types of situations. You know, the fire officers or firefighters are back today, and they're helping kind of take this house apart. So, absolutely, it's it's a very uh, a very uh, challenging thing for everybody involved. Uh, what can you tell us about removal of the bodies? I understand one has been already. Is that correct? Uh, my understanding is is we've we've located one, and uh, that process is ongoing. It's it's not an easy one because mm-hmm. we're which parts of the house have to come apart to access it. And, and uh, again, with being concerned about structural integrity, uh, the concern is that if, if we take this wall down, do we all of a sudden lose half the house comes down? So yeah. it's a slow process. Uh, I last heard that they expected, I think, to be able to have that body removed within the next hour. So um, that's where I'm at with that information. And what about other houses on the street? Were they affected at all? Um, actually, the it, the way the the way the the residence is it's it's kind of you know, on one side of it is a parking lot and on the other side is uh, uh, an agency called Port Cares they're um, kind of an out of the cold type location and so that's we have actually been able to use that as our kind of our temporary command post and they've been absolutely um, awesome in terms of opening the doors and giving you know the first responders and the people who are working a place to kind of um, step out of the cold have meetings and, and just kind of do what they have to do. Uh, anything as far as a cause at this point? At this point, the cause is very, it, it would be too preliminary. Uh, you know, cause is often based on evidence, and, and that evidence is, is within the structure. And 
So as the uh, you know the Ontario Fire Marshal and, and our investigators go through the building, those are cause such as things. And I don't want to dive into the fire marshal's business too much, but they're going to look at fire patterns and evidence and things like that. But at this point, it's it'd be too preliminary to speculate on cause. Uh, you talked about uh, obviously uh, a tight knit town, a small uh, city um, uh, with obviously smaller crews. Uh, do do uh, does everybody have enough resources to do the job? Uh, this must be hard on their crews and, and being able to replenish them. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, we we bring it. We in a situation like this, you know, um, we're we've made is whatever resources from the police perspective. Um, I know our senior management has basically said what, it, what you guys need, we'll, we'll kind of help you out with. And then I know from the fire department and the town, uh, resources have been forthcoming throughout. So um, it, it boils down to that point, just uh, just people on the ground getting getting work done, and everyone's been really. Um, forthcoming to kind of get it take their part and, and do what they have to do to kind of bring closure and, and trying to uh, reduce the reduce the impact as much as we can on the family and try and bring closure to them at this point Philip any sort of idea of a timeline of how long you'll be on site um, I, I know just in listening to one of the uh, gentlemen from the Ontario fire marshal's office they they're predicting um, they're going to be on scene at least for another two to three days. Um, that's just the on scene time. Their investigation will be long gone. Will extend certainly beyond that. Um, but uh, the the moving through the building and sifting through the building is it's it's a methodical process that you know that we want to locate the bodies, collect evidence, but it all has to be done safely. We don't want any more injuries or tragedy. Uh, I guess no way of knowing at this point if there were smoke detectors in the house. I guess that's all too early, is it? It's a little preliminary. Uh, I don't know if you've seen photos at this point. There, there literally is no longer a roof on the top of the house. Yeah. That's all collapsed in. And so as as the uh, fire marshal and their teams work through the building and with our forensic people, they're going to be looking for those, uh, you know, those pieces of um, rubble, batteries and so on, the things like that. And they'll be able to kind of look at those a little more. So it, it's a little too preliminary at this point to be able to speculate on that. Do we know uh, who sounded the alarm, who reported this, how it all uh, came down that way? Uh, you know what? That's that's a good question, and and I haven't I haven't looked into that. That's one I, I will look into. I, I I don't know. I know when fire crews uh, arrived on scene, um, and again they were four minutes. Their fire halls, I think, were four minutes from here, mm-hmm. or if not less. Uh, the house was fully involved at that point, so uh, I'm not sure where it came from, but it, things were happening very quickly when people got on scene. Philip, no, do you know anything uh, as far as funds or ways people can help uh, this family in any way? Has anything been set up you can tell us about at this point? Uh, I, I believe there's been mention of a GoFundMe page. I, I, I'm not 100% certain. I, I briefly looked at some of our social media feeds this morning, and I, know, I, I think if you look at the Niagara Region Police uh, Facebook page, there may have been a mention of it this morning. On one of the, uh, Somebody made, um, may have made a post. Um, but I'm, sure, but I can't say for certain. Uh, and uh, as far as uh, affecting the neighborhood, uh, th- this is obviously a, a close knit community. Uh, do you know of anything locally that's going on, or, or people have uh, have tried to help the family, or where the family is at this point? Uh, I, the, the family, I think, is, is you know they're getting support from other family members in the community as best as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't heard of any fundraisers or donation things that have been planned. Um, that's certainly a wonderful idea. I, if someone was to take that on, I'm, you know, it's it's a time of year where these people have kind of now don't have anything. Um, so uh, I don't know of anything like that, but certainly a, a great idea. I'm sure that, uh, of course, as we poke around, we can get something like that going. Uh, Constable Philip Gavin has been with us, Niagara Regional Police Service. I know, Constable, let me ask you one more question. I know that sure. the, uh, the police chief uh, who we had initially tried to get a hold of uh, uh, was quite upset about all of this. Uh, from a fire perspective, uh, do we know if uh, this department is full, volunteered, full-time? Do, can you tell us any information about that? I'm sorry. When you, okay, fire chief, you meant the fire chief. Sorry, yeah, sorry um, yes. Um, well, there, there, my understanding is there are combinations here. Uh, that there are some full-time members. I believe the fire chief is a full-time member. Right. Uh, the large majority of the Port Colborne Fire Service, they actually have some full-time as well, I believe. But the large majority of them are uh, volunteer firefighters. Mm. 
Constable Philip Gavin has been with us, Niagara Regional Police Service. Uh, Philip, thank you very, very much for the time at In Insight. And uh, as well, our condolences go out and our uh, prayers and thoughts to everybody in your community. And as soon as we can find out more about some sort of fundraising, we'll certainly do our best to uh, help you with that. Thank you very much. Good luck in your work. Great. Thank you very much for your time. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we have heard so much about the deadly opioid crisis that is just ravishing Canada, and and especially in places like uh, Vancouver, where uh, there are lots of, uh, well, no, I shouldn't say lots, it's certainly not enough, uh, growing uh, uh, number of safe injection sites to help people. Uh, now, of course, uh, that looks like that's the way to go and that that's the way we help people. We'll find out more about that and how close Hamilton is to getting one of these safe injection sites. Joining us now, Dr. Jessica Hopkins is with us, Associate Medical Officer of Health, City of Hamilton, Public Health Services, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Jessica. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, first of all, uh, your take on how deadly this crisis is, your take on uh, on how it's it seems now it's the number one health crisis. It's the only thing we're talking about. So certainly the increase in opioid-related overdoses is of significant concern. And, and opioids are things like uh, morphine, heroin, fentanyl. So many people will have been hearing about these in the news recently. Um, and unfortunately, they can be deadly. So there are some different ways that we can address this. And um, one of these is through uh, supervised in, um, injection sites. Talk a little bit about those. Uh, there's still uh, skepticism out there that some people don't understand how this works. What is the, w- w- what's the reasoning behind safe injection, sh- injection sites and why they are so important? Yeah, so so supervised injection sites are uh, physical locations where people who use injection drugs can go and safely inject under the supervision of healthcare staff such as nurses so that if they do suffer an overdose that they can be treated promptly um, because overdoses can be deadly. At the same time, they're also able to get safe injection equipment, so clean needles, for example, so that they aren't using dirty needles, sharing them with others, which decreases the risk of spreading diseases like hepatitis C and HIV to others. And I think it's really important for everyone to keep in mind that supervised injection sites are only one strategy. When we think about how we are working against drug use in the community, there are four pillars that we think about. There's prevention, so things like education to kids in school. There's treatment so that when people are ready to get off uh, drugs, um, they're able to enter addiction treatment services and mental health services. There's enforcement, which the police do. And then there's harm reduction. And harm reduction is where supervised injection sites fall um, into the scheme of things. And this is really an opportunity to meet people where they're at. Um, I think as anyone can imagine, getting off drugs isn't easy. And it's far better to keep people alive so that they have an opportunity to get off drugs and and keep them alive and keep them safer with clean injection equipment until they're ready to enter treatment. Who are are using uh, safe injection sites? Because we hear so much of this opioid crisis. It, It covers all walks of life. Is it the same thing with safe injection sites? That's right. So in terms of, you know, the use of opioids, you're absolutely right. It is everyone, all walks of life. It doesn't discriminate by how much money you make or where you live. Um, In terms of who uses supervised injection sites, around the world there are 90 supervised injection sites, and there are two in North America. Both of those are in Vancouver. And the the people who tend to use uh, supervised injection sites are those who are most at risk of overdose. They are people who tend to inject in public and leave the injection equipment in public, reusing needles, so increased uh, spread of infectious diseases. So by getting those really high-risk people to use a service like a supervised injection site, we get them off the street so they're not publicly injecting. We get the litter, so the, the discarded needles, off the street so that they're safely disposed of and people are able to access clean injection equipment. So there's far less risk of spreading things like HIV and hepatitis C to others. Safe to say, and I don't want to stereotype, that it's more street people or homeless that are using these sites? It can certainly be people who are street involved or people who don't have stable housing. 
Um, but the reality is a supervised injection site could be used um, by uh, anyone who's injecting drugs because, you know, there are other services in supervised injection sites beyond just a safe space to inject. This is a really great opportunity where we can link people with housing, where we can link them with mental health and addiction services, get them basic primary care, things like immunizations. Uh, talk about uh, the problem locally and in Hamilton and where we are with one of these sites. Yeah, so this is certainly a citywide problem. We know that injection drug use occurs across the city. Um, in Hamilton uh, Public Health, we also have a uh, needle exchange service. So um, we give out a large number of clean needles um, every year, and we uh, participate in the collection of uh, dirty needles so that they go to a safe place. So this is definitely something that's in our community. We know in Hamilton we have right now about 30 overdose dose deaths due to opioid medications every year, and, uh, and that's totally preventable. I mean, these are, are not people who need to die. In terms of where we're at with a supervised injection site in Hamilton, I know many of people in Hamilton participated in an online survey in October, and I thank all those people who did share their voice um, around supervised injection sites. Um, 84% of the people who were, uh, responded were in support of those. Um, Hamilton City Council has approved uh, a budget to proceed with a study to understand um, more about supervised injection and whether or not this would be a good choice for Hamilton. It will also give us an opportunity to get out there and talk to even more people so that we can really understand what people think about supervised injection services and um, uh, any concerns they might have so that we can hopefully address those concerns as well. That study is planned to take place over uh, 2017. And right now we're just in the midst of actually revising some of our plans because of the announcement on Monday from the Federal Minister of Health that the requirements are now fewer for um, mm -hmm. an application for a supervised injection site. So we're in the process of figuring out um, we can probably uh, do our study in less time and at less cost as a result of uh, the uh, new bill that is likely to pass. So obviously the government recognizes this issue and is trying to give the cities the tools to address it. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, we, we hear so much about opioid use and we hear it with prescription drugs and, and whether it's been people who are suffering chronic pain or, or have been overprescribed at one time or another and, and have become addicted. What's the bigger problem here? This issue that you're talking about, whether w with safe injection sites, you know, are people shooting this more than they are consuming it as a prescription drug form? What's the bigger issue here? Uh, intravenous drugs or pills? Yes, yeah, so, so for supervised injection sites, um, the concern is especially around injecting because when people inject really strong opioid medications in particular, that gets into their bloodstream really fast and, and when it goes to the brain, it shuts down the part of the brain that tells us to breathe and, that, and that's why people die from those overdoses. So when opioids are injected, they can be very, very dangerous for people. And supervised injection sites allow people a safer place where they can take time injecting and, um, and have safe and clean equipment to be able to do that. Um, absolutely, I mean, other prescription drugs, and if people take them in pill form um, and ingest them, that is certainly a concern as well. One of the challenges, though, is this is a problem that, you know, people don't tend to talk about. So we don't have really good data right now on the number of people um, that are actually misusing opioids and not taking them as prescribed. So uh, we don't know if it's necessarily the same person who's been addicted to opioids uh, via a prescription or pain medication that all of a sudden goes too far and ends up in an injection uh, situation. Does that happen or are we talking about two different problems here? No, I mean, this is really a spectrum of issues. And we do know that for a lot of people who misuse opioid medications, the way they initially started on those opioid medications was a very legitimate reason. They may have had surgery or they may have had an injury at work and got started on um, a medication to control their pain um, and then became addicted to it and started using that medication not as prescribed. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we know this is a problem that impacts all sorts of people. This is, you know, this, you know, can be people who are, are very stable and work um, to people who are street involved as well. So this is definitely 
citywide problem and something that we really need to uh, to look for uh, solutions that are going to address that entire spectrum of people. As you mentioned, you've got to keep people alive in order to get them off all of this, but this seems to be a crisis. Uh, would you describe it as that? I mean, you know, maybe not so much on the in- injection side of it, but we're, we're certainly hearing that as well as far as deaths and such, but just the sheer amounts of everyday people who are using this. How do we get Canada off this? Yeah, I mean, this is a really complex problem and something that requires um, really the, the working together of uh, federal government, the provincial government, as well as the, the local organizations that provide services to um, just healthcare services, but as well as specific services to people who need um, mental health and addictions problems. So, I mean, it's certainly very welcome to see that the federal government has um, come out with a new drug strategy. I know that the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care is also looking very closely at this issue. So this is a, a complex problem um, that's going to involve a lot of people working together to solve it. And, and I don't have a quick and easy answer for you about how to fix it. You talked about drug strategy. Uh, are we doing enough to keep people from getting addicted to it in the first place? I mean, it seemed that when this, when these drugs first came out, certainly uh, the oxys and, and fentanyls, the, well, maybe not so much fentanyl, but these were these were miracle drugs that were not addictive and this, that, and the other. Um, and it seemed that they were at one point overprescribed. Have we shut that tap off? Have we slowed this down? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, in my role at public health, that's not something that I have any control over. But what I can say as a physician that, you know, certainly there has been a lot of discussion in the medical community about appropriate prescribing. Um, and my understanding is that, that we are going to get new opioid uh, prescribing guidelines that should help to assist with making sure that, that people who, who do have pain get appropriate pain control because we don't want people to suffer, but at the same time recognizing that there is a risk with these medications. And so we want to be really careful about who's getting them. Where do you see this in five years? Where do you see this problem, this issue? Will it be as bad? Will it be worse? Um, my absolute hope is that it will be better. I mean, I, I wish I had a crystal ball, but I think there are a lot of pieces in place now that are going to help us to get to a better place. And I think the first one, you know, that that I think about is just that there has been such a wonderful discussion in the community recently about things like mental health, addictions, harm reduction and how we can support people who are struggling with addictions issues. And I think, you know, it's really wonderful to see the conversation that's happening because the more people in our community that we have interested in this issue and involved in wanting to find solutions, the faster we're going to get there. So, you know, I I do have great hopes for Hamilton that we are going to be in a better position in five years. Uh, Are there more of these cases now or are we just hearing more about them? Are they just being reported more? I mean, where was this issue 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Was it just as bad but just unreported? How do we compare? I think you're 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 speaking specifically to, uh, to opioid. opioid overdoses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I th- you know we certainly we don't have data going back um, uh, quite as far here locally to be able to to say anything exact. But you know with drugs the the drugs of use change over time, and so there have been you know periods of time back in the the 1980s, for example, um, the early 80s where cocaine was used more commonly, um, and and so you see different drugs being used at different points in time. And right now, certainly the use of opioids um, has become more common and certainly with with absolutely deadly effects with the number of overdoses that have been seen. And you also see different trends in different communities at different points in time. So, for example, you know, one of the reasons that Vancouver is the, the only city in Canada currently with supervised injection sites is because they were having all these problems um, with overdoses earlier than other communities. And so, you know, it's really important from public health that we try to respond in, in, in a timely fashion as these issues come up. And so right now, we're trying to, uh, to get on top of it here in Hamilton uh, with other things like our naloxone program. 
Um, here's a, a note I received from a listener. It says, I used to be against uh, safe injection sites, probably based on bias of users, but one comment made to me last week at City Center changed my mind. I let my seven-year-old son into a washroom at City Center, and a person told me there's usually needles in there, sometimes blood. Now I know we need somewhere for people to go. Uh, is there support for these in the public? Do you think the public gets this? So I think certainly the Hamilton community is learning about them. Um, we did our online survey in October, and we asked people about their opinions around supervised injection services. And of the people who responded, 84, 84% were in support of supervised injection services for Hamilton. One of the things that we're going to be doing as part of the study in 2017 is getting out there and talking to people. And so for people who don't know very much about supervised injection services, we're going to be able to provide them with some information, answer their questions. Um, and for those people who know more about them, you know, they can also be engaged in the process. So there will be more opportunity for people in 2017 to learn more about them. I get this question a lot, doctor, and I'll pose it to you whether you can answer it or not. Um, lots of people will say we have so many problems with these drugs now. What are we doing by legalizing things like marijuana? Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, so certainly, I mean, the decision to legalize marijuana is a decision that the federal government will make. I think there's certainly some public health um, uh, ideas that we can think about if uh, legalization is going to go forward, you know, and, and some of those are around making sure that people have education, you know, and, and understanding the impacts of drugs. You know, things like restrictions, the same way we don't allow um, young people to purchase uh, cigarettes and tobacco, maybe there needs to be some thought to restrictions and about who's able to access it um, around things like we don't want people driving impaired by any substance. So, you know, certainly from a public health standpoint, um, we are we want to make sure that there are appropriate um, measures in place to continue to protect the public. Uh, anything, getting back to the opioid situation, what would you say to somebody who has an issue, somebody who knows they've got a problem and has to do something? What should they do? Yeah, so, I mean, I would really encourage anyone who has a problem, or if you know someone who has a problem, to encourage them to see their health care provider. There is definitely good help available for people with mental health and addictions issues who want to get off drugs to do that. Um, and a great start is by talking to your health care provider. Do you have to want to get off in order to make this happen? You know, I think about there, there are lots of people uh, probably in your listener group who will have smoked themselves or know someone who smoked. And, and there are times in people's lives sometimes when they're really stressed and it's just not a good time for them to get off cigarettes. They might know they need to for their health, um, but they're not able to do that at that point in time. And so certainly when people are ready um, and they want to, they feel committed to quitting using any kind of drug, they're far more likely to be successful. Hmm. Good advice. Dr. Jessica Hopkins has been with us, Associate Medical Officer of Health City of Hamilton Public Health Services. Doctor, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Bye now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Jacob Smith and I having a discussion on uh, why people are voting for Donald Trump. And, um, you know, I find it fascinating and, you know, I'm not agreeing with Donald Trump and in his his tactics and the way he's conducted himself and the things that he's done. And everything everybody says about him is absolutely correct. You're right. But what the left has a hard time understanding is even though he's all of those things, people still want him more than they want the status quo. And they don't care what he's done. They just don't want the other in the room. You're gone. Get out. That's the message. That's the message. So, again, no matter how you try to paint a picture of how bad it is and how bad he was, and he was, he said some terrible things. And the the sideshow, I mean, you know, can't meet with... Uh, for an intelligence briefing, but can meet with Kanye West. I agree. I agree with you 100% on that. I really do. But what people fail to understand is even with all of that, they would still rather have that than the status quo. 
Will they pay the price? Will it be like Brexit? Maybe. Maybe not. But I think they wanted change. Not necessarily Donald Trump. They just didn't want that. They didn't want Hillary. They didn't want the establishment. It's not that they wanted Donald Trump. He was the only other option that didn't appear to be status quo, even though he is part of the elite that he's talking about. So, and, and I think people are screaming that louder and louder and louder, thinking that, that Americans don't get it. And I think Americans are screaming, yes, we do get it. And even with all that, we still hate your guy and we want him gone or her gone. And, and I think that's where the difference is. And people are still trying to see, but look at this, look at this, look at this. Like you're missing the point. Look at this. And I don't think it's about that. People have accepted that. They still don't want the opposite. They don't want the status quo. And they're willing to admit and accept all of those false faults in order to get rid of the status quo. So rather than pointing at what's there in its place, why doesn't the status quo look inward and say, we got to make sure this doesn't happen again. How do we change that? How do we include people? How do we bring them in instead of giving them no other option but to take a Trump? And instead, everybody's insulting the electorate and saying, how could they have done this? How could they have done this? How could they have done this? As opposed to looking inward and said, how did we let this happen? Because despite how bad people say he is, and I'm not disagreeing with that, they still would rather have that, knowing all of that, than they would the status quo. And I think the left is a hard time accepting that. They're just starting to accept it on CNN. So no matter what side you pick, I, I think that's the message that people are missing. Yeah, we know that is what Trump supporters are saying. We know that's all bad. We don't like it either. But we don't like that more. And we think at least somehow this guy is going to pull us back to where we were or give us some sort of future. Maybe right, maybe wrong. But that's the reason I believe it happened. All right, let's move on and uh, talk about something more locally. A local union, 1005, in the city of Hamilton are opposing the Stelco restructuring, uh, restructuring pro, uh, plan and are trying to convince a Toronto judge to send negotiators back to the drawing board. Uh, and we'll start with that. Uh, joining us now is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? Lock her up. Locked her up. I'm sorry. I, you had me all wrapped up there. I was, I was ready. I was ready. Do you still think people are missing the point here? And I mean, we've had this discussion a bazillion no, not times. Not at all. And in fact, you you said people should wake up to this. A good person to wake up to this, Kathleen Wynne. Yeah. You know, there yeah. is such a, an appetite, and, and I've heard people make the same kind of arguments. Boy, do you, have you looked at this Brown character? I'm not sure where he's coming from, and I don't mean to be uh, nasty about Sam Westerhoff, but oh my gosh, social conservative, it feels like going backwards. Well, people aren't going to vote for that. Look, when people have decided the status quo doesn't uh, cut it anymore, they'll vote for a blind dog if they think it will make a difference. And I think this is what we've had in the United States, this is what we had is Brexit, and I think we may see the same thing play out in some provincial elections in the next year, two years. And I think a lot of Canadian politicians are naive to think that we're different or that much different from the United States. Sure, the social cl classes are different. Sure, we take care of people a lot better here than they do there. But uh, I think they're underestimating the power of this movement. And Scott, I know you want to talk about 1005, but just quickly, the other thing I think people just aren't giving enough credit to is this recession of 2007-8. It is in the rearview mirror, but we are supposed to be recovering and headed towards prosperity. We are trapped in the longest period of recovery in Canadian economic history. People were okay if you said, look, you've got to hunker down and get through the next couple of years, but things will be better. People have been waiting for better. They thought Obama would bring better. He didn't. Now they're saying, okay. Trump, let's give you a shot at it. You're different. Let's see if you can bring better. And that's what a lot of people will call it the middle class and the, even the lower class are saying. I hear the upper class is doing well. I'm hearing the one percenters are cashing in. Where's my little piece of the pie? And I am getting a little tired of waiting. So someone 
hurry this to me, and the person who is seen as doing that is likely going to be rewarded with votes. What are your thoughts, since we're talking about it now, of his cabinet picks and the fact that uh, these are all pretty uh, well-heeled professionals who uh, are very good at what they do, uh, CEO of Exxon, a good example? Yeah, so he, he made no bones about the fact that he wanted to use uh, talented business people in his cabinet. He said, for instance, all these economic deals, TPP, NAFTA, they're negotiated by bureaucrats. They don't understand business. I'm going to bring business people in, people who know how to make a deal. All right. The other group that he's brought in is uh, retired generals. I don't, I don't think it's been since the end of the Second World War that we've seen this many ex-generals or retired generals in a cabinet before. He again would argue, well, look, they're the people who understand national security or defense. That's why I want them there. So it, it means an interesting approach. A president doesn't normally succeed or fail based on the cabinet picks. They, they are mostly caretakers. I, I bet you can't tell me who the Secretary of Energy is today, or I bet you can't tell me who the Secretary of Commerce is today. They quickly disappear. But it does say that, at least on this front, Donald's keeping his word. Uh, all business, all the time. Is that a good approach for the U.S.? Well, this, this was the approach that Donald said would bring change. And so I think people at this moment, again, are prepared to suspend disbelief and say, we've tried these other kinds of things. We've tried putting politicians in, what have you. Let's, let's see what these folks can do. And uh, with Mr. Tillerson, the, uh, Rex Tillerson, who is the CEO of ExxonMobil, uh, is he a little too close to the Russians? Uh, maybe, but let's, uh, let's see what that does. Maybe he can make some things happen that other people can't. What do you think this means for Canada with Trump there? Well, the good news is we were never in his crosshairs. If he was upset about people, it was the Chinese, it was the Mexicans, it was people from the Middle East. On balance, I think he likes us, and he's also pro-oil. So for us, uh, I, again, I know the environmentalists listening are going to be just rolling it when I say this, but he, he wants to build Keystone XL. He'd like to be more energy self-sufficient in this country, and, and for the moment he doesn't really believe in climate change, so it's full speed ahead, oil, oil, oil. Because Canada's economy is so dependent on oil, I've said this to you before, but I'll remind you again, half the stocks traded in the Toronto Stock Exchange have some connection to petroleum and oil, then this is what might bring some prosperity back into the Canadian economy. It'll be a little backhanded, but because he is so pro the past and the way we did things in the past as opposed to the future, chances are there will be some benefit to us. Uh, speaking of stocks, U.S. going up, many did not predict that. Many obviously didn't predict him winning either, but uh, they, they've certainly seemed to go up. The feds have, have jumped uh, interest rates in the United States. How do we explain that if it was supposed to be doom and gloom? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, uh, while he brings uncertainty, and normally markets hate uncertainty, and I'll tell you candidly, the first week of the Trump presidency, we're all going to be holding our breath just to see what happens when he really takes the reins, but he has spoken a very pro-business language. Again, I know this is going to drive your listeners crazy, but he has said, I want to reduce personal taxes, I want to reduce corporate taxes. Wow, if I'm in that category of people, that means I'm going to have more cash, more cash perhaps to myself, or more cash to invest. This is why, in part, the Federal Reserve Board yesterday, in raising interest rates a quarter of a point, suggested that in 2017 they're going to do three more of these. And why they're going to do three more of them is if Donald is true to his word, and mind you, that's a really big if, if he's true to his word, and he makes all of these cuts, then this may stimulate the economy. Then we see inflation, and that's the worst thing they want. So they're just giving people on notice. They're going to watch closely to see how much stimulative effect all of these tax cuts are going to have. And if it starts to get out of control, then expect to see these three increases. My bet it won't be three. My bet it will be two one kind of in the middle of the year, another one a year from now, because I don't think he can make those tax cuts happen fast enough or deep enough. He's still got to balance the budget and other things like that. So I, I don't think it'll be as much, but that's what people are thinking about. He might be a really pro-business kind of guy, and that's good news for those, uh, those sort of people who invest. Will Bank of Canada follow suit and raise interest rates? Eventually. I don't think you'll see anything until the last half of the year. In other words, there'll be nothing in the first six months. And the reason is that we as Canada rely on three economies to do well. So it appears right now the American economy is doing better, but we need Europe to also be going somewhere. And again, for all of 2017, Europe is going to be mired down with Brexit and other sort of things, Italy, those sorts of things. And then we need China. Now we think China is starting to come back, but it's going to watch the Trump presidency as well. And if Donald starts slapping 35% duties and so on and so forth, 
we're not just sure where China is. So I think the wise person would say nothing for the first half of the year. And maybe, maybe a year from now at last, you'll see the Bank of Canada coax the rate up. But what does that mean, Scott? Right now it's at a half a percent. It'll go up to three-quarters of a percent. That's still among the lowest interest rates in Canadian history. All right, let's talk about uh, local uh, 1005, the city of Hamilton, uh, opposing the Stelco restructuring plan. Uh, where is this going? It's, it just, this just keeps going around and around and around in circles. It, well, the opposition are for two quite different reasons. So let me start with the city of Hamilton, because that might be a little easier to understand. I think primarily the city is upset because they weren't uh, involved at all. No one thought to include them. And I can tell you why they weren't included is that the amount of money the city is owed is infinitesimal. Now, I hate to say six to eight million dollars is infinitesimal, but when your single largest creditor is owed $2.3 billion, we're not even talking 1% of that. This is like one-third of 1% of this. That's why people have focused on the largest creditors first. What the judge has said in the case is the following. If this deal is approved, and I'm thinking it might be approved for March 31, 2017, instantly they start paying property taxes again. So that's number one. That's great news for the city. And then number two, have you accrued the taxes you've been owed? Oh, you have? Good. Send them a bill and tell them you owe us these back taxes. So although the judge didn't make them pay them, he didn't waive them. He just said accrue them. And there's no reason to think that uh, uh, the new owners uh, are going to come along and not pay those taxes. So I get it that your nose is out of joint that you weren't involved, but I don't think you've got that much to worry about. The union is different. What the union wants is a magical word that we don't have anymore. It's called guarantees. They want to guarantee first that the pension fund will be fully funded tomorrow. And so whatever, whatever money is being put into this company, and we think the deal is around uh, three, three and a half billion dollars, um, we want you to add another billion and fully top up all the pension funds so we never have to worry about this again. The current deal doesn't do that. What the current deal does is seize some guaranteed payments, but relatively small, $10 million, $15 million, and then the creation of this thing called a land trust, where all of the land that uh, Stelco currently occupies is put into this trust. Some of it is leased back to the company for operations. The remainder gets cleaned up and then is offered for sale, and then hopefully new businesses locate there. Well, as it's sold, those land parcels are sold. That will generate, my guess is, somewhere between $100 and $200 million that will go into the pension fund. What the union says is, well, all right, I get that, but all you're doing is punting the problem down the road. Mm. You're not fixing the deficit today, and we don't want anything to go forward without a guarantee this deficit will be taken care of. On the other hand, uh, you know, the companies involved say, we just don't have the extra kind of money to give you that guarantee. The other thing they want is a guarantee that we won't go through this process again. We went through one creditor protection, and then we had a venture capital merge. Then they sold it to U.S. Steel. Now we got another creditor protection, another venture capital company. Guess what, Scott? In probably five years, they'll flip it to another steelmaking company, and they say, oh, I'm tired of this cycle. Get us off this merry-go-round. Give us a guarantee this will never happen again. Hmm. And again, you can't give them those kind of guarantees. Uh, that was my next question. We'll be having, will we be having this discussion again five years from now? Well, we could. And so the, the key thing to understand about any primary metal industry, so that could be copper, that could be iron, it could be nickel, it could be aluminum, is they tend to go through feast and famine cycles. There's a time when the world is snapping up all of that metal that they can, whatever metal we we're talking about, and then there's another time when the, the market's not and prices fall. And so the trick is, in good times, you bank the money you make, and you build up cash reserves, what have you, and then when you get to the leaner times, you can draw on those. I think the problem for Stelco, if we go through the last cycle, was although there were some good times, this is when the company got flipped to U.S. Steel, and then all of a sudden, as U.S. Steel was ready to do things, the economy turned south. There just wasn't enough good times to bank enough money to get through the bad times, and it could happen all over again. How is DeFasco surviving, yet Stelco has these issues? You know, this, uh, people ask me that question all the time. And I'm sure I've asked you several times. No, well, no, not you, but other people have asked me this all the time. And you have to go back to a decision made roughly 50 years ago, a strategic decision. Both companies had their little retreats, and one said, you know, we're going to focus on small production runs of high steel, high, uh, uh, high technology kinds of steel, special additives, special commodities. We're going to go after little niche markets. That's DeFasco. Stelco said, no, we're going to make good quality basic steel that you can use in all kinds of different things. And for the first 20 to 30 years, the two strategies both seemed to work in the marketplace. Both kinds of products were demanded. 
But now as we've approached the, the 90s and the 2000s and now the 2010s, we're seeing the demand for basic commodity steel declining and people saying, no, I need steel with special little properties, special little niches. And DeFasco then was positioned for that brilliantly, and unfortunately, Stelco was not. Could they change it? Yes. But whenever you change your strategy, it takes a while for people to say, well, I don't know if I trust you. You didn't make this kind of steel before, so now you've got to win me over as opposed to going to the tried and true, the one who's always made it. It's hard to change that strategy once you put it in place, especially after 50 years. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Lock her up. Lock her up. <laughs> hey, what do you think? Do you think oh, Kevin O'Leary is going to enter the race? Yes. Yes, and he will be exactly like Donald Trump. He's going to take absolutely every page from the Donald Trump book. Expect politics like you've never seen it before. Do you think he's going to be just as insultive? Absolutely. That's, really? that's his persona, right? He's Mr. Wonderful, meaning he's just the opposite, yeah. and he's going to bring that. He's seen one reality show contestant win. Why not another? So uh, do you think he'll do it the same way with uh, people uh, being uh, – I, I can't imagine him going as low as Donald. Uh, but you, no, do you but think that will happen? But what he will do, which is what Donald did, is he'll tell you whatever you want to hear to get elected, and then once he's elected, he may abandon it all. This is what Donald Trump seems to be doing on many fronts. He's backing away, already beginning to upset some of the base, but not enough to say they made a mistake. But, you know, I think he will say exactly what it needs to get elected, and that's where if I'm a Justin Trudeau or even a Thomas Mulcair, you've never seen somebody do it this way before. Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. It's going to be fun. Thank we'll you, watch. Marvin. Bye-bye now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Jason Priestley is with us, 2016 inductee to Canada's Walk of Fame. Hello, Jason. How are you today? I'm good, buddy. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Before we get started, I just wondered if you have any thoughts on the passing of Alan Thicke. Very shocked and very saddened uh, to hear that news last night. Alan, uh, Alan was a friend of mine for uh, wow, 25, almost 30 years. Um, we played, uh, we played hockey together um, uh, on a very regular basis. Um, he was, uh, he was really one of the good guys uh, here in Hollywood, um, and um, I, I'm going to miss him uh, a lot. He was really, uh, he was really, 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 really a great guy. And, um, a great friend, a great father, a great family man. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll miss his presence um, a lot. Uh, obviously, he made it at a time when it was tough for, uh, difficult for Canadians to make it in L.A. Did he blaze a trail for you guys at all? I, he did. He, I mean, he, he did. He certainly did. And, and he was, and, and he was very, uh, he was very uh, giving of his time, and uh, and he was, he was always very generous. Um, uh, and and very and a very proud Canadian, you know. He never tried to hide his uh, Canadian heritage, and he was um, uh, he was always very good to uh, to other Canadians, and uh, very um, uh, uh, very very uh, very giving of his of his time and of his knowledge and of his experience. You know, he was always very helpful to um, uh, to other Canadians. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about you and, and how your career has evolved over the years. I mean, you made it big right out of the gate with Beverly Hills 90210 and then have sustained this success both behind and in front of the camera. What's your key to doing that? How do you maintain uh, this business, longevity in this business? <laughs> well, that's, um, that's, uh, that's a very good question. And it, I mean, for me, it, it's just been uh, it's just been the result of uh, of a lot of uh, hard work you know I, I just continue to uh, I just continue to, to keep working and I think that that seems to be the the, the secret to it for me uh, anyway is to just continue to, to, to keep working and I and, and, and working hard to, to keep trying to find projects that that are that are challenging and that are interesting me you know I, I think that the, the secret to continuing to evolve as as an artist whether it's whether it's in front of the camera or behind the camera is to it's always find uh, material that um, that forces you into situations where you find yourself uh, a little bit uncomfortable and um, hmm. and, th and that forces you to to rise to those challenges and 
Um, and and I, I've been fortunate to be able to continually find uh, that type of material. Um, and uh, and I've and I've always forced myself to, to take on those challenges. What's the and, um, and I've been I've been fortunate that that taking on those challenges has paid uh, paid great dividends for me. What's the biggest difference in your life career now as opposed to those early days? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I just bring a, a greater depth of knowledge and understanding to the projects that I take on now, um, simply because I've been doing this for much longer um, than, than, I, than I had been back then. You know, when, when I started Beverly Hills 90210, I was 21 years old. Um, and even, even at that young age, I had been working in the industry for quite some time uh, already. I mean, I, I know it seemed like, um, uh, like, like I, it, was, it was my first project, but it was far from it. Um, I, you know, I, I had been working in the industry for, uh, for quite a while already at that point in time. You know, it's, my, my story is no different from anybody else's. It only took me 10 years to become an overnight success. Um, and it, it was, uh, but, but even given that, you know, at, you know, now at, at, at my advanced stage, I, I find myself at a time when I've been working in this industry for, for 40 years. Um, so I, every project that I take on now, I bring, uh, I bring an, an immense depth of knowledge and understanding to it. And I think that that, um, uh, having that type of, 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 of understanding behind every uh, choice that I make is, has, has been, uh, has, has, it gives me a freedom in my work that I, that I did not have before. What can you tell us about this upcoming project, the biopic uh, project about Phil Hartman? Well, the, the Phil Hartman project is, is a project we've been working on for about, uh, for about 18 months now. And I, and I think the script is, uh, the script is actually getting uh, pretty close now. Um, you know, we've been working in those 18 months to develop the material uh, to get it to a place where where it needs to be before we actually uh, roll cameras on the on, on the on the film itself. Um, but but I think we're getting pretty close. I I, I think uh, I, I think we we stand a pretty good chance of of actually uh, rolling cameras on the on the film next year in 2017. What interested you in this project? What about Phil Hartman? Well, Phil, you know, I, I, I had the good fortune to get to work with Phil, actually, um, back in uh, 1992. Uh, and Phil was, uh, Phil was an amazingly uh, talented man. Um, and, uh, you know, to, but, he, but he also was, um, was a complicated man. And, and, I, I, and I, even though I only worked with him for, uh, for a brief time, um, I, I had the opportunity to see that uh, for myself firsthand. Um, and he's a, I, I, I think that, I, I think that to, to have the opportunity to, to show that to people um, was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. Are all brilliant minds complicated? I think all people are complicated, <laughs> uh, whether they're brilliant or not. Um, people are just complicated. Us, us as human beings are complicated. Um, maybe people who are brilliant are even more complicated. Um, I'm not sure, but, uh, I think people are just complicated. What's it like for you to come back and participate in something like, uh, the 2016 induction into the Canada Walk of Fame? You know, it was, it, it was an incredible honor. Um, it was incredibly humbling. You know, I was uh, I was I was honored this year alongside some amazing Canadians um, from all facets of, of life. Um, it, it was an amazing experience to get to share with my family. Uh, you know, my wife and my children were there. Uh, it was it was really uh, really a phenomenal uh, evening for us, and um, uh, it was it was something I'll, something I'll never forget. It was really an amazing experience. Jason, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it, and good luck in future endeavors. You got it, Scott. My pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.